KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Sabrina Boyd Serka. Mark Sigel was really on the front lines of the gay rights movement all the way back to the 70s. He was at Stonewall, he helped found the Gay Liberation Front, and then of course he founded the Philadelphia Gay News, which was recently given a landmark by the city of Philadelphia. So that gave me the idea to talk to Mark, not only about this landmark, but about his whole life story. And he gave me stories, from disrupting national news broadcasts to dancing at the White House with his husband. He told me his life has been all about visibility. I could have talked to him for hours and hours on end, but here's the conversation we had. Mark, you've been an activist for the LGBTQ plus community for 52 years. I want to go all the way back to begin. How did it start for you? What made you want to take action? You know, I've thought about this an awful lot. um, And my past seems to be different than many people I know. But I guess it all started when I was a child. I grew up in the 1950s or 60s, which I know is difficult for people to grasp. I'm now 70 (laughs) years old. But growing up and literally beginning to understand that you're gay meant at that time that we were totally invisible. Um, You didn't find LGBT people on TV, radio, or newspapers. Zero. There was no visibility. If you would uh, go to church, a mosque, or a synagogue, we were immoral. If you would go to the police, we were illegal. If you go to the medical institution, we were uh, psychologically ill. If you went to the government, we were unemployable. Um, You could not be a doctor. You could not be a lawyer. Um, Because we were invisible, uh, society was allowed to believe every stereotype about us that was out there. And we could not be talked about. We were the one group in society that you never talked about or you made fun of. And if you found somebody, you beat them up and put them in jail or put them in a mental institution. That's how I grew up. So understanding who I was, I wanted to search about what that was. And I didn't feel any guilt about it. I felt I just couldn't understand it. So at my age, the only place you might be able to find information on who I was, was a library. If you were lucky, there would be maybe one, two, or three books on the subject. You would take them down after you had to find them because they were hidden. um, And they would talk about the fact that you were immoral and most likely mentally ill. I didn't feel that way. Um, And I couldn't understand it. What I did know uh, by watching shows like the David Susskind show and others where they talked about the issue, which was very minimal, uh, was there was a place in New York called Greenwich Village where strange people went. So after graduating high school, on May 10th, 1969, uh, I hightailed it to New York, moved into a YMCA, and decided to find what I thought would be my people. So I took a subway down to Greenwich Village. And when you get off the subway, there are no neon signs saying, this way to the gay people. Um, (laughs) So I looked around and I eventually found Christopher Street. To me, that was Nirvana because I saw people who I believe were like me. And eventually I made friends. And hanging out in those days for an 18-year-old, which was me, uh, and if you were gay, was basically walking up and down Christopher Street all night long 
talking with your friends about whatever, the latest fashions, latest recordings, um, who you liked, who you didn't like. Um, you might hang out in the Silver Dollar Diner, have a cup of coffee. But every night, at the end of the night, we would go to Stonewall. And the reason you would go to Stonewall was it was the only place you, an 18-year-old like me could dance their ass off. <laughs> what 18-year-old does not want to do that? And it was the only place because it was illegal to have a gay bar in New York. If you had a gay bar in New York um, and you served a homosexual, you would lose your license. Wow. So any place that, that served gay people was illegal, most likely mafia-controlled, um, watered-down drinks. That's what it looked like, and that's what it was. People asked me to describe it. All, all I could say is red, black, and wood color. I mean, it didn't have a character to it. But it was our safe place. Out on the street, we might be harassed by the police, bullied by people in the city, um, beat up. It was a safe haven where we could dance. So you're from Mount Airy. You went to Germantown High School and Temple University. And then you moved to New York. What was it like as a gay kid growing up in Philly in the 60s? Do you think that there was anything about the city specifically that was different from just the rest of the world? I can make a distinction by pointing out something so simple and pragmatic, it's ridiculous. The only demonstrations for gay rights anywhere in the entire United States um, happened in Philadelphia 65 to 69. They were su such failure that there was no media on them. Living in Philadelphia, I felt there were no gay people here. The most important gay rights demonstrations were here. I didn't know about them. Why didn't I know about them? because there was no media about them. The pictures we have about them today were taken by Kayla Husen. And you'll notice that at that point, there were 42 at the maximum. And this is being generous, 100 people at those demonstrations. And this was the national demonstration. So in my book, I make it very clear and I point out and I go a little further in the research and explain that up until Stonewall, in the entire United States and America, there were only 100 out gay people. So growing up here, I thought I was the only one. So that kind of brings us to the biggest part of your story that I'm sure you've talked about a million times, but I would really love to hear what Stonewall was like through your eyes. So I'll tell you about Stonewall, but here's the funny thing. Um, as you just said, the biggest part, I don't think it is. I know that when I die, which will be no time soon, by the way, <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, that people will say, Stonewall Pioneer. That's not the legacy I wish to leave, but we'll get onto that later. But that night, uh, I was in the Stonewall, uh, lights flickered on. Uh, having been in New York for just six weeks, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I asked the person next to me what was happening. And very casually, he said, Oh, just another raid. <laughs> Usually in New York, um, these bars were illegal. So there was an agreement between the mafia and the police that they would raid them and take a few dollars out of the cash register and leave. But not that night. That night changed the world. The police stormed in, breaking down the doors or battering the doors, I should say, came in, started pushing people up against the wall, using every profanity you could use. If you were a stereotype, you got the abuse of them more than anything else. If you look like you were an older person with money, they asked you to take uh, your wallet out and took money from you. My thought was, gee, why don't we call the police? And the obvious point comes out, these are 
the police doing this to us, which made me realize that we were the lowest rung of society and no one would protect us. After the police had destroyed the bar and insulted everybody in, slapped a few people around, uh, they began to let us out. Uh, they carted us, make sure we were over 18, which was the law in New York at that time. I looked like the boy next door. Wasn't much they could do to me. So I was one of the first that got let out. I walked across the street, sat there or stood there and watched what was going on because I was fascinated by it. Um, and one thing I noticed very quickly, as people started coming out of the bar, those of us who were street kids or homeless or people of color or trans, we stood around. Anybody that had a decent job or family in the area, they all ran away as quickly as they possibly could. So eventually there were, I would believe, about 50 people outside. And we were to circle around the door and the police had done everything they could possibly do. And they wanted to just leave. Well, they opened the door. And the first time they opened the door, for some odd reason, we threw everything we could at that door, which was nickels, dimes, whatever we had in our pockets, stones that were on the ground, maybe an empty can of soda, and they quickly closed the door. This happened several times. Each time it became a little more violent where the police realized they could not leave. The point I want to make about here, which I think is very important, that most people overlook. Up until that point, the police had always incarcerated us. This time, we incarcerated the police. So they're inside, they want to get out, they have to call their police precinct to ask for reinforcements. I would have loved to have heard that call. I am sure they were very embarrassed to make it because up to that point, they thought they could do anything with us they wanted. They thought we would never fight back. Um, so I'm watching all of this going on. And all of a sudden, a guy by the name of Marty Robinson uh, comes up to me. And Marty, who was part of a group called the Gay Action Group, gave me a piece of chalk. And he said, I want you to go up and down Christopher Street and right on the street tomorrow night, Stonewall. And I also want you to write it on the buildings. So I did that for probably the next hour or so. And that, I believe, created the second night of Stonewall, um, where on the second night of Stonewall, from the steps of Stonewall, Marty Robinson, Martha Shelley, and others spoke to the crowd about gay liberation. That was a slap into the face to the police. It was also illegal. Gay people couldn't congregate. We were saying, okay, we dare you to break us up. Second night in a row, we're already taking back our street. Third night, fourth night, fifth night, some skirmishes broke out. But from the third night on, we were on the street leafleting, um, creating what became from the ashes of Stonewall. Gay Liberation Front. Gay Liberation Front took onto its mantle many things. Uh, for the first time in the history of our community, we were a diversified group. Black, white, young, old, trans, uh, cisgender people. We were everything. Women, men. It's the first time this community united and we united against society. And we decided we were going to be out 
loud and proud that had never happened before. Uh, we also were the most dysfunctional organization that had ever existed in our community. <laughs> um, and I'm very proud of that. Um, if you would go to a GLF meeting, uh, first thing you would notice is somebody would throw up a stick in the air and whoever caught it chaired that meeting. Um, you never took a vote. Everything had to be agreed upon about consensus. But we did two things that first year, which I call the first magical year of gay liberation that had never been done before. First thing we did was self-identify. We'd allow people to identify themselves, not the way society had identified us before. Um, that's where you see the word homosexual, which is a scientific word, disappearing. That word represents only one part of everything we are. And that's where you see the words gay man and lesbian women be beginning to come about. Um, trans eventually came about, but we were self-identifying as who we were and making those words the identity we thought they were rather than society doing it. We became visible for the first time. We were out on the street illegally leafleting every single night. We put out uh, leaflets on gay uh, medical emergencies, legal emergencies, meeting when meetings would take place, which were illegal, when social events would happen. We created the first gay youth organization. We created the first trans organization. We created the first LGBT community center. If all of that were not enough in that first year. At the end of it, we created what was the first gay pride. That first gay pride called Christian Street Liberation Day Committee. Um, I was a marshal on that first parade and we had to take civil disobedience because we didn't know how we'd be treated. Remember, we were gonna march out of Christopher Street, the only place we had as a home, into the city. We were gonna walk Christopher Street, which is about A Street. We were gonna walk from A Street all the way to Central Park, which is 57th Street up 6th Avenue. That is an amazing feat. We didn't know if we would be bombed, hit by cars, rocks would be thrown at us. Um, the city of New York did not wish to give us a permit. We told the city of New York, we don't care, we're marching. Um, they eventually gave us a permit, didn't matter. We had no idea how many people would show up. After all, the most anybody had ever shown up for anything LGBT was, as I said earlier, a hundred people. As we began to assemble that morning, um, the crowd swelled. We could, I could see that there were at least 200 people there. And that made me very happy that we had grown the community that much. What I didn't expect, what would happen over the next hour or so. So we start marching and I was at the head of the parade out of um, Christopher Street. We get on to 6th Avenue and we're marching. The police attempt to keep us into two lanes. That eventually just broke down. And we were so large, we had to take the whole street, which I think was four or five lanes. I don't even know. When we got to 17th Street, for whatever reason, I decided to climb a pole, which I couldn't do today, um, <laughs> and to look back. Um, and as I look back, I noticed that not only were we filling all those lanes of the highway, we were still coming out of Christopher Street. New York Times the following day reported that we had 5,000 people there. Um, I believe most people believe it was more like 15. But this, we had another parade similarly in Los Angeles. So in what, that one magic year, we took a gay rights movement from 100 people to at least 30,000. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And I think I could tell you why. I think most people at that time of my age group 
felt as I did that night outside Stonewall. So one time outside Stonewall, there are people running around, there are windows breaking, there's everything. And I'm just standing there looking at the door. And in my head, I'm saying to myself, this is 1969. Women are fighting for their rights. Latinos are fighting for their rights. Blacks are fighting for their rights. What about us? And in my mind somewhere, I said, this is what I'll be doing for the rest of my life. I had no idea what that was because there were no professional gay actors at that time. No one made a living out of it. No one was being paid. I had no idea, but I knew it was something I had to do because it was something I believed in. Finally, I'm getting an idea, which is you got to fight back. Everything they believe about us is wrong. Let's fight back and show them. And my life, therefore, is all about visibility, not about Stonewall. It's visibility. Because after that, um, and Gay Liberation Front, I realized that we had to be more out loud and proud and get before the public. And that's why I'm the one who started creating the disruptions of TV shows, which got millions of people to see who we were. And to me, that's the most important legacy that I could have, um, which I probably never will. But um, I mean, up to that point, we'd done little local demonstrations here and there around the country. My idea was to go bigger. So I decided to disrupt national TV shows. Um, and to give you the, the example of what I believe that did, um, in December of 1973, I disrupted a TV show called The CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And this was what became called the zap, right? That yes. became sort of a trend. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we did, I think, six TV um, disruptions. Tonight Show, Today Show, That Show, The Mike Douglas Show. We kept doing it until the networks gave in because we caused them such a, such huge sums of money. Um, mm. Variety, the national showbiz newspaper, said that I caused the TV networks $750,000 in what they call tape delays. That would be millions of dollars today. That December night in 1973, um, you got to realize there was no internet, no cell phones. Um, there were no cable news. There were only three networks. Um, and if you got the news, for the most part, you got it from your morning newspaper or, more importantly, Walter Cronkite in the CBS Evening News. Walter was the most trusted man in America, according to most polls, and his rating was a whopping 66 million people at that time. You don't get those kind of ratings today unless it's the Super Bowl. So after the first um, first commercial, um, I walked on the set and uh, I sat between Walter sitting at a desk and the camera that was on his face and held the sign up says gays pro and yelled gays protest CBS prejudice. Um, and this was live on the air. 66 million people saw it. And for the most part, it was the first time many of those 66 million saw a gay person. So the next morning, if they didn't see it, it was on the front page of every newspaper in America. But at CBS, they wrapped me in cable, struggled me to the ground, knowing civil disobedience. I did not fight back. I'm a nonviolent civil disobedience person. I got arrested and uh, charged with uh, crimes against the Federal Communications Act, which held a $10,000 fine and 10 years imprisonment. CBS allowed the federal prosecutor to prosecute me. Um, but they didn't realize some of the tricks we had under our legal hands. So the following morning, my lawyer, Hal Weiner, called CBS and said, well, I'd like to come in and subpoena Walter Cronkite. Um, and they laughed him off. Walter was too 
big of an asset. Um, so Hal said, well, you know, in New York City, it's legal to Xerox a subpoena, and each of them are legal. And if you don't allow me to come in and subpoena Walter Cronkite, I'm giving 50 subpoenas to Hell's Angels, 50 to Gay Access Lines, and offering a $1,000 bounty for the first one to serve Walter. Hmm. Obviously, Hal got in to serve Walter. First day of the trial at 100 Center Street in New York, the prosecution does it. Uh, prosecution of me. Uh, there's a break in the trial because they have to set up set up a camera to show the film of the disruption. That's how technology was then. I'm out in the hallway. Uh, I feel a tap on my shoulder. I turn around and the man says, you must be Mark Sigel. I look at him and said, you must be Walter Cronkite. Walter says to me, um, why did you do what you did? And I said, because your show, new show, is biased. And he took umbrage to that. And I looked at him and I said, if I could prove it to you, will you change it? He didn't answer, but I went on anyway. Um, I said, two weeks ago, you reported on 5,000 women walking down Fifth Avenue proclaiming International Women's Year. Um, you covered that. He says, that was a valid news story. I said, you know, I agree with you. It absolutely was. And you should cover it. I said, so why didn't you cover um, a few months earlier when gay people walked down that same avenue in the same numbers? Mm -hmm. And he just looked at me. I said, last week, after my disruption, you finally did the first news report on um, what was happening in the gay community. You did a story on the failure of New York City to pass a gay rights bill. He said that was a valid news story. Again, I said, yes, it was. And yes, you should have reported on it. I said, but what you didn't do was report on the 25 other cities that have passed gay rights bills. That's bias. He said no word, just turned around and walked back into the courtroom. Next up, uh, if they showed the film of the disruption, they called Walter to the stand. Um, and the first question the prosecutor asked Walter was, when these people trespassed into your studio, and Walter said, excuse me, we invited them. That blew out the entire case. Um, we were still fined $400, um, but that was the end of the case. And Walter and I became friends after that. That's great. If you would have come back to see the CBS Evening News about a week from that, after the first commercial again, uh, Walter, who usually sat at the desk, you would see Walter standing up with a map of the United States, and he pointed out cities that had passed gay rights legislation. Wow, what an impact. That changed news. That changed visibility. And that's what I think is my small contribution to the gay rights movement. So you came back to Philly and started the Philadelphia Gay News. What what inspired that specific move? Um, it's actually kind of comical, and, and it's not what everybody thinks. Um, so after doing Cronkite, what I learned, if you do something crazy like that, everybody wants to talk about it. So from a total silence about LGBT people, all of a sudden I'm being asked to do all of these national talk shows. I'm on the Phil Donahue three times. I'm on the Joe Pine show, every other talk show of its time. And more and more millions of people are seeing gay people. They might've disliked me because of what I was doing, 
but they were seeing a gay person. They were talking about the issue and more and more people would come out and more and more people who are LGBT might defend me, might. Uh, most LGBT people really were not approving of my actions at that time. Um, in my community, I was probably more disliked than liked because of those actions. Uh, but I was doing what I believed in to get us where I thought we needed to be. Um, so during that period of time, 72 to 74, I probably was the best well-known LGBT activist in the nation. Uh, and my friend Jim Austin had an LGBT newspaper in Pittsburgh, but he was expanding to Ohio and wanted me to do, go out on a speaking tour to help promote the paper, which I did. In the car on the way back to Pittsburgh, he said, why don't you have one of these in Philadelphia? I said, we don't know ha have anyone who knows how to do it. And he says, why don't you do it? I said, I don't have the, bill the ability. And he said, well, I could teach you that. And I hemmed and I hoed. And he said, Mark, look at your shoe. And I looked at my shoe and there was a hole in it. Huh. He said, Mark, eventually you're going to have to do something for a living. <laughs> and I said to him, but LGBT newspapers don't make any money. And he said, well, I make a living out of it for myself. He said, maybe there might be a future in it. If you're good at developing a gay community, you might be good at developing this. And so that born the Philadelphia Gay News. And the funny part about it is nine months into our partnership with Jim, Jim said to me, well, I'm getting out of the newspaper business. <laughs> <laughs> so we just passed it on to you. Yep. And uh, that was 45 years ago. And journalism has become something I've really appreciated. But what people know now, which they never knew before, was that one of the people I could go to to ask for advice was Walter. Walter was one of my mentors during that period of time. That's amazing. <laughs> Such a full turnaround. <laughs> and the way that you can open people's eyes, you know, it just, just got to do something to get their attention. Well, that's what, what I've always believed in. Again, um, do a stunt. And you've, I don't mind calling them stunts. Uh, one time, uh, United Way would not fund LGBT organizations. So I uh, got a bike brace and put it around my neck and made sure that they couldn't get in their front doors in the morning. And if they did, they would have broken my neck. So they didn't want to touch me or go near the front doors. I'd also put a chain on the back doors. So that caused headlines. That caused United Way to figure, maybe we should fund these people because we don't want this crazy guy to come back here again. Again, more headlines, more invitations to talk about the issues. Another time I um, went to chain myself to um, the Liberty Bell, which at that time was in Independence Hall. Um, the police had learned about that somehow in advance, and um, they went chasing me around Independence Hall. And I eventually went up the steps above, above the bell and handcuffed myself to the railing. Those handcuffs, by the way, are now in the Smithsonian Institute. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were so many of those stunts I did. I, I can't even keep track of them. So that visibility led into something else, which was because I was the most famous, I guess, LGBT person at the time, um, I did strange things. I, I threw things at the wall thinking none of them would ever happen, but you try. I keep telling people in my community, please, please, please think big. Don't think little, think big. I wrote a letter to then Governor Milton Schaap of Pennsylvania, and said, we'd like a meeting, never expecting to even get a reply. No governor in the United States had ever 
spoken with LGBT people. None, ever. I get a reply uh, from his office saying, uh, he will meet with you confidentially, as I would expect, uh, tomorrow if you could be in Norristown. Got in the car, drove to Norristown, went into an office, uh, met with him. He uh, had staff with him. He said, well, what can I do for you? Um, I said, what you could do for my community is, and you go for the gold ring. Again, go for the biggest thing you could possibly go for. Never think small. Um, uh, first thing you could do is issue an executive order saying that LGBT people cannot be discriminated against in state government in hiring. Uh, second thing you could do is create a commission to look into where there are problems for LGBT people in, in the state of Pennsylvania. He said, well, I'll take that under advisement. Thank you. We shook hands. And as we shook hands, uh, the doors opened and all of a sudden there's all these flashlights going off. His office had called the press corps to photograph the fact that he was meeting with gay activists. I had no idea this would take place. And though as that, as that was happening, he's handshake and he had a smile on his face and says, oh, by the way, I caught you on the Cronkite show. That meeting only took place because of that disruption. Now, why is that important? And why do I think visibility is so important and what my legacy should be? Um, from that meeting came that executive order. He issued it. It became the first governmental order, not only in this country, but in the world to protect the jobs of LGBT people. He then created that council, which then became the first governmental, official governmental council of its type anywhere in the world. What it does is any LGBT liaison officer to any political person in this country or the world, any LGBT governmental council, all stands on the shoulders of what happened in 1974, thanks to Cronkite and thanks to Governor Schapp. That includes the, the governmental councils now created by President Biden. Right. It's amazing how one thing so many years ago, you look at where it led to now, and it's it might seem small back then, but it's so huge now. When you look at what you just said, having a landmark in Philadelphia might not seem like such a big deal, but it's really important to acknowledge all that you've done, all that the Philadelphia Gay News has done. Justin Udo talks to you at that ceremony revealing the landmark for the Philadelphia Gay News. I want to know how you felt then and what it means to you coming all this way, looking back on everything you've done, both personally, the work that you've put in, and as a representative of this community that went from being invisible to having this landmark very visible in the city of Philadelphia. I'm still processing it. It might seem strange, but I go from one project to another, to another, and I immerse myself in those projects, and I don't look back. Um, just on a few occasions, I've gotten to do that, and I can even tell you which ones. But taking it all in, um, Jerry Hughes, before he died, Jerry Hughes was a member of Gay Liberation Front, um, a beloved member, someone I, I, I dearly loved and a close friend. And he looked at me once when I was complaining about something, and he said, Mark, don't you appreciate that you are the most prolific of all of us from 1969? And I really hadn't, but this, that week when I did that unveiling, 
um, I said something and it was spontaneous. It was absolutely spontaneous. Um, and it made me realize it. And I'm becoming very emotional about it as I think about it. Now, I stood there and I realized the power of the visibility of that paper. And I was able to say, without that paper and what it was pushing, the LGBT Community Center, which was uh, around the corner, which was started with a 300,000 earmark from Congress, which just happened to have been the first LGBT earmark ever given to a gay group from the United States Congress, created the Gay Community Center, just down the street from where that marker was put, happens to be the John C. Anderson LGBT Senior Affordable Apartment Building, a $19.8 million project partnered with the Obama administration. Without PGN, that building wouldn't be there. So I really got to see the appreciate the power of the paper. Um, but what's more important to me, and I was being interviewed by one of the TV stations before the event, and they said, what's important to you about that? And I said that the word gay will be on there. I said, some kid's going to walk by there, one who knows they're gay, and they're going to see some see that up there. And it's going to give them a sense of pride and a sense to know that there's a community that will embrace them, that they're not alone. And that's kind of important. And, you know, I, I've over the years gotten a lot of people say to me, oh, this paper saved my life. Or, um, you know, I met my husband or wife through this paper um, or you helped me keep my job. The enormity of that is beginning to hit me. That one week probably was the most pivotal processing week for me because this is what happened in eight days. It's kind of, I had to face my own history um, in a way I'd never expected. On that Sunday, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, unveiling the plaque for Governor Schapp. Um, and it was different than any other governor in probably the nation because it wasn't just a plaque commemorating his governorship. It was a plaque commemorating his work with the LGBT community. None like that exists anywhere in the world. In 1974, and I was proud, I got to realize what we had done. Um, it just, at that moment is when I realized that every single liaison and every single commission stands on the shoulders of that work. Then Wednesday was the Philadelphia Gay News uh, plaque. Then on Friday, I flew to Chicago to give a speech about Stonewall um, at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. Three pivotal sections of my life. And we're not even talking about the disruptions of TV, which is another part of my life. So in one, in one eight day period, it smacked me in the face, all the history that I'd been involved in. When someone was reviewing my book, they said that I was the Forrest Gump of the gay movement. <laughs> I think I now understand that because Forrest Gump pops up at all these historic moments. Mm, right, right, right. That took you to three different cities in one week. You've been kind of all over the place. You've been to the White House. A story that I really loved is uh, when you went to the White House reception, where you were asked to dance with your partner, Jason, now husband. I don't know if you were married at that time. But it made an, enough of an impact on you that you titled your memoir after that moment. So I have to ask, what was that like? What was the reception for? And what was it like? I have lots of Barack Obama stories. But this, okay. So I guess what I have to tell you is the meaning of that story to me is very personal. Um, when I told my parents I was gay, uh, 
I was I created Gay Youth in New York. Another thing that I done, which was the first gay youth organization. Um, and I was advising people how to come out to their parents. We were dealing with bully issues. We were helping runaways, um, but I hadn't come out to my parents yet. So the brave me, people think I'm so brave. Uh, rather than do it in person, I called them. Well, it's funny because now you couldn't do all those things without your parents finding out because it's all over the internet, social media. Exactly. But at that time, you had to call them. Correct. But most of the activism which I got headlines for um, came after uh, I told my parents. So uh, I called my parents. My father got on the phone and I said, Dad, I have something to tell you which might surprise you. Um, and he said, what is it? I said, I'm gay. His response was, oh, I knew that already. Here, talk to your mother. <laughs> So that really shocked me. Um, so my mother gets on the phone and I go, mom, I have something to tell you. Um, I'm gay. Her reaction was different. She said, Mark, uh, you're my son. I love you, but I'm really concerned uh, that you will be lonely in your old age because no one believed what would happen for us. So what I would like to say now, if my mom was alive, mom, I definitely am old. <laughs> Mom, I'm married. Mom, I'm extremely happily married. And Mom, guess what? The President of the United States, Barack Obama, asked me to bring my husband to the White House, and we got to dance at a reception in the White House. Mom, could you ever think that 18-year-old kid standing out Stonewall would ever live to see something like that? I mean, to me, that brings my life into perspective. And I'm only 70 years old. I got another 20, 30 years to go. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Can't wait to see what you do next. <laughs> and I don't know. And that's what the most wonderful thing is. I will get involved. I mean, everything that I've gotten involved with sort of like came about as a surprise. Yeah. As I say, spontaneity, spontaneity is one of the things I love about life. And um, people will come up to me and say, what about this? Or I'll go have some brainstorm in my head and I'll go up to someone and go, what about this idea? Um, and the idea is that everything I've done all along the way has been done with some incredible partners who work with me. Um, I can't take the uh, credit for it all, but um, I've had some incredible people along the way. Uh, and they were brave people as well because they had to believe in these crazy things we were doing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's that's a lot of trust to put in you. I, I have to ask because you're perfectly set up in front of this display behind you. I see your Grand Marshal uh, banner. Are, what are some of those trophies and, and things, you know, maybe one or two and what moments in your life do they represent? Okay. Well, the square thing you see behind me is the cover of my book. Again, everything is surprising to me. The book came about because I was finishing all the work on the John C. Anderson building, which was like 18 hours a day. And my husband's realizing that if I didn't have something to do, I would drive him crazy. So he's, <laughs> what? This is now a good time to work on your memoir. <laughs> um, so we did. Um, I got an agent uh, thinking that no one's going to be interested, no one's going to care. Uh, the agent, a uh, wonderful woman, literally called me back a couple of days later and said, could you be in New York? next week uh, for a meeting. Um, I met with John Templeton, who's sort of famous in the literary world, at his publishing company. And we sat down for a meeting. By the end of the meeting, he decided to publish the book. It was the fastest sell of a book that I think. Uh, and during the next couple of years of doing the book, 
I kept saying to him, you know, you're doing all this work and it's going to amount to nothing. Um, I believed, honestly believed that the book would come out and it would uh, be a couple of months work. And then I go back to my normal life and that would be the end of it. They, meaning the agents, the publicists, the editors, uh, my publisher, all thought they were doing something big. I had no concept. I didn't realize that it would become a bestseller. Had no idea. I didn't realize for the next three years I'd be traveling the country uh, doing um, appearances for the book that people would call and ask me to come and speak. I had no concept. Since the book has been out, uh, parts of it have been in three documentaries. Uh, it just became an audio book this last August 16th. When it got published, which is very funny, no audio book company would purchase the rights to it. Really? Yeah. So last spring in the middle of COVID, I had nothing to do. And I called Johnny back and I said, you know, maybe we should, you know, see if anybody wants it. He called me back the next day and told me the two largest audio book companies were bidding for it. I'm not surprised. The book is five years old now. Um, so that's out. And, I, um, and Apple Books yesterday sent me a notice that I am on their trending and bestseller list. Five years later. Five year, a five-year-old book. Yeah. So Apple Books, audio books, is, because it's trending and a bestseller, they've discounted it so up until November 25th, I think. You can get it for $9.99. If we haven't said it yet, the name of that book is And Then I Danced, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. So that's the reference of And Then I Danced, Dancing at the White House. And on the cover of the book is a picture of me being arrested. That's why I said, And Then I Danced, after being arrested? But you have to read the whole book to get the story. And I insisted on that photo. None, nobody um, in the publishing house, the managers, wanted that picture on the cover. But I wanted that picture in the cover because I wanted to show today's activists what it took to get where we are today. Right. So all those people in you know, gay rights protests or Black Lives Matter protests who are being arrested, are being, you know, going through what they're going through there, you're just a shining example of what that can actually achieve. But also what I want to show them, and I hope I, when I talk about it, is uh, show them the joy of achievement. Um, it might be tough at the moment. I mean, I've had people sit on me, beat me up, uh, going for nickel rides in police wagons, um, had someone shoot at me in Chicago once. But those are mere minutes when you take the scope of it all. I know people watch this can't see the smile on my face, but we've achieved more than I ever dreamed we could have in 1969. So there is great joy. Um, and one thing I will not do that seems people today want to do. I am not going to be a victim. I won't allow anyone to make me a victim. We have obviously made tremendous strides. What do you think of kind of where we are now and what, what we're facing, the issues that are still facing the LGBTQ community? What do you think are the next big things to do and to address? Well, Outside the LGBT community, uh, there's the issue of trans rights. Right now, they are the most uh, endangered member of our community. Forty-some um, trans people have been killed thus far this year, and we're going to hit a record sometime. And the reason for that, again, goes back to that word I keep using, which is visibility. You don't see those numbers with gay men and lesbian women today because of visibility. We've been visible for 50 years now. They're tolerant of us, to say the least, if not loving of us. They don't have 
that understanding of the trans community. Um, so the trans community has to be a little more visible and we have to do everything we can help them to be visible because that's what br visibility brings education. Um, that's really important. We somehow uh, have lost the creativity in our struggle for equality. Um, I, I mentioned some of the things I did, some of the stunts I did. I think it's time for people to do stunts again. For instance, the, the most important thing that we could do on a national level is the Equality Act. It's been sitting in Congress for 40 some years in one shape or number. And right now it's passed the House, but can't pass the Senate because the Republicans won't. Well, why has no one handcuffed themselves to something at Mitch McConnell's office, him, something? Why have they not done a sit-in outside his home? Why have they not chalked something around his office or his home? Why don't they come up with something different than what I did and others did? Be creative. Make him the issue. Make the Republicans the issue. We sort of like have wimped out as a community. Everybody wants to sit in their armchair chair and, if you excuse the impression, bitch. Do action. Don't be afraid to do action. Um, that's outside the community. Inside the community, we need to learn to talk to each other and stop hurling names at each other. That just doesn't work. You got to talk, communicate, and get and unite. And we're not doing that at the moment. And that's sad. It's very sad. Because if you're not united, you are not going to win. Yeah. I'm hopeful. And I hope that you are... Hopeful. Do you feel optimistic that those things can get better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if somebody else doesn't do it, I'll go do it. There you go. I mean, I'll go up against McConnell. I'm not afraid of him. I mean, and nobody else should be. He's accessible. You could always come up with something creative and nonviolent. Um, and, you know, that that's the to me, the fun part is being creative. And your creativity has achieved so much. Yeah. Thanks to a lot of other people who've been with me. I could talk to you for hours, but I don't know if anyone would listen to a three-hour podcast. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, in the name of wrapping things up a little bit, are there any other final thoughts that you have, a message that you want to get out to our listeners, memories you want to share, anything like that? Oh, my God. Um, the point is that when you ask that kind of question, I like go through my mind and try to think, okay, what subject matter haven't I done? There are little things you can do that are just strange in the world. So when during the Gay Raiders period, which is the one that did all the zaps and which got met with Governor Schaap, I also did two things which were a little strange. Uh, we also did things which I would consider clerical and not radical. So uh, one of the things we did, and these papers are in the Smithsonian as well, um, we did the first uh, letter to every governor in the country asking them if they would do similar things to what Governor Schaap did. And surprisingly, we got back about 30 responses. Um, a lot of them not very good, but some <laughs> of them very positive, which again spread that work to other states. Um, we did another one, which was kind of interesting, and I don't know why we did this one, to police chiefs around the country. And we got responses as well. Now today, HRC does similar work with their corporate index, their uh, municipal index. It's the same thing. Those were much in depth. We just did one or two questions, but it's basically the same idea. So, you know, 
think on a large scale, uh, that's, that in those days was a large scale. We did it in a minimal, minimalistic way by only asking two questions. Today, HRC asked like 80 questions of corporations and 80 questions of cities. Um, that's a growth. That's how we grew. I don't know what else to add. Um, I'd have to go looking through my book. I mean, the great, the fun part of writing a book, by the way, about yourself, you've obviously forgotten more things than you can remember. And when you write a book, you uh, have to research yourself. And the one reason my book has done so well is it's probably the only book in the LGBT community that hasn't been criticized for facts. And the reason being is we decided that every single item in the book had to have someone alive who could vouch for it, uh, had to have a press clipping or TV interview. So uh, there's backup for everything that's in the book. So basically, if you want to hear more, go read this book, because that will that has everything you remember and more. And I, th I think the book has what I hope is the joy that I share today in what we've achieved. Um, that's kind of fun. I mean, they're just crazy moments. I mean, one of the crazy moments I can remember is uh, when we decided to build the John C. Anderson building, um, we did it with a partner, a, a development director. And I'm I had to take him to Washington to meet with senators. And then our final meeting of the day was at the White House. By the way, and that building became a White House cha a champion project. From the White House, they threw us over to the vice president's office, who was Joe Biden then. Um, oh, here's a little, there's funny things in the book, which you just got to know the system. So when I went into the vice president's office, where there's a long table, and there's one chair, which has the vice president's seal, which obviously is his seat. Um, he's not going to be in the meeting, and I know that. Um, but the people from his office said, oh, you have to sit in this chair. And I'm thinking, oh, they just want to make me feel big sitting in the vice president's chair. No. Three minutes later, the vice president peeks in the door and he says, hey, Mark, how you doing? And walks out. Whoa. You know me. <laughs> the point <laughs> is, he knew where I was sitting and who was sitting. They set that up. I was all set up. It was great. <laughs> um, but, but then I got to work with him. And, uh, I, I, you know, the, the book is full of funny aspects. When you look at it all in perspective, I've come from an area where 99% of my community was in the closet. 99% of my community hated what I was doing. Today, a majority of my community, 90-some percent, think I'm a hero. And that's literally hard to deal with. Um, I still get emotional when I think about that. The most emotional line in my book was when I actually wrote, because it made me realize it, how I hated my own community, hated me during that radical period. That, that hurt a great deal. They didn't realize the change I was trying to do and bring. Um, now they understand it. And some of those people are still around. And they some of the people who really treated me badly, um, they think of themselves as a real close friend of me at this point. But I still have to remember that. That's still back here. But the good thing is, is that you learn to just let it go by. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Sabrina Boyd Serka, and we'll have another episode out soon.